Our Own Press presents The Cradle, written and performed by T.M. Camp. a nice evening, G said. It'll do, J.R. replied, even with the rain. They were sitting together on the porch around the back of the house, looking down a long slope to where the river passed by. G had given up trying to make sense of the house and the dome and how everything fit together, like much of what she had seen since the accident so long ago now, it seemed. This was all just one more strange place that she couldn't quite figure out. After so much of this sort of thing, she'd come to terms with the idea that she was, more or less, living in a fairy tale. Even so, J.R. was right. It was nice out on the porch, peaceful. The rain had let up somewhat and G liked the way it sounded on top of the porch, the whisper of it falling into the grass the sound of the river running beneath it all. She watched fat drops gather, swell, and fall from the eaves, shifting her gaze from one to the other so that she didn't miss any, playing a little game with herself to see if she was quick enough to keep up as they fell. She leaned back, listened to the creak of the old rocking chair. She set the balls of her feet against the railing, flexing her toes in and out, dodging the raindrops. I think I'll join you in that, J.R. said. He leaned forward to unlace his work boots. Ugh, not as young as I used to be. Even in the darkness, there was no denying it. He was older now, older than he'd been a few hours earlier. She could hear it in his voice. The crow's feet she'd first seen take root around his eyes had deepened since dinner and the deep black of his hair had dulled, iron and gray now. Soon he would be older than the photo on the piano. She didn't think it would be polite to ask why this was happening. He didn't seem too concerned, and surely he knew what was happening to him, surely he could feel it, so she tamped down her usual curiosity. I feel bad, she said. Should I go in and help? She had a vague feeling that her parents would be disappointed in her for not lending a hand with the dishes. And June could have used the help. By the end of the meal, J.R. wasn't the only one who had aged. His wife had also grown visibly older, streaks of gray appearing in her hair. She was still full of smiles and kindness, but there was a new frailty there around the edges. Oddly enough, as J.R. and June grew older, the old woman that G had taken the calling Soapy had somehow grown younger. By the end of dinner, her white hair had warmed with a little color, her face smoothed out and her cheeks grew fuller. Her eyes remained bright and blue as ever. As it was, G realized, June and Soapy were approaching the point where they would be about the same age, and soon enough, they'd be moving away from each other one growing older and the other younger. G itched to ask, but 
In her experience, people here had a tendency to explain things, sooner or later. Do you think I should? G asked again, but J.R. shook his head. Might as well stay out here and keep me company, he told her. The missus won't mind, and she's got plenty of help in there. She was more than willing to take him at his word. Doing the dishes had never been her favorite activity, and she'd just as soon sit out here with him. I'd go in, but she tells me I'm not much use in the kitchen, he said with a wink. Once again, G had that flash of recognition. She knew him from somewhere. How long have you lived here? She hoped he'd drop some kind of clue to jog her memory. Oh, not too long. J.R. leaned further back in his chair, the floorboards creaking. We've been here a while, he said. Some of us longer than the others. Even in the dim light, G could see the new creases that sadness had folded into his face and between his words. So, you're dead then. G still hadn't found a way to ask that question without it coming out rude. You and June and Soap, uh, that old woman? I suppose so. J.R. didn't seem to mind the question. Although I'm still getting used to it. This wasn't exactly what I'd been expecting. They didn't mention any of this in Sunday school. There was a sound from behind them and G turned to see June poking her head out of the door. Is it still raining? Yes, ma'am, G answered. J.R. craned his neck to look back at his wife. It let up a bit, but I'm guessing there's still more on the way. He massaged his hands, rubbing the spaces between his knuckles. I'm feeling it more than I want to. Okay then, June said. We're just about finished up in there. Do you all want oatmeal cookies? J.R. looked to G. Do we? The girl nodded. I expect we do, he told his wife. She smiled. I'll put on some coffee then. J.R. turned to rise. I can do that, Mama. But June shooed him back to his seat. No, she told him. You stay and keep our guests company. We'll take care of it. She ducked back in, and J.R. relaxed back into his chair with a sigh. I'm a lucky man, he said to no one in particular. She watched the clouds overhead little flickers of lightning in the distance. She figured that she'd better leave soon if she was going to try and beat the storm. Thank you for dinner, G said, standing up. I really appreciate it, but I'm sorry that I can't pay for anything. I don't have any money right now. This was not entirely true. She did have some. Just a coin. Worthless to anyone else, and it didn't have much more than sentimental value even to her. G sat sometimes when she was in a quiet mood and alone, running her fingers over the cracked and pitted surface, thinking back on the choices she had made. I'm pretty good at dusting, she volunteered. I do it for my mom all the time. Did it for my mom, I mean, back home. She was still getting used to that change in tense, even now. 
so I could help out for a few days to pay you back. J.R. shook his head. Your money's no good here, sister. You can stay as long as you like, and any help you want to offer is welcome, but you don't have to work any more than you want to. And you don't have to go rushing off. I expect you could use a good night's sleep, and the beds are soft. There's no use running off into a storm when you don't have to. There was a rumble of thunder, and he looked up. And I expect it's going to be something to see this storm. You don't want to be out in it all by yourself. The door banged open behind them. G turned to see a young woman standing there. With the light of the house behind her, it was hard to see her face, but she hadn't been around earlier in the evening, or at dinner. She smiled shyly to the both of them, cupping a steaming mug in her hands. G caught the faint whiff of coffee. Is that for me? J.R. held out his hand. Well, thank you, he said, taking the cup from her. He nodded to G. I didn't ask. Do you want anything? Coffee? Hot chocolate? No, thank you, G answered. She studied the woman's dress, a simple shift with a faded pattern barely visible. This was a dress that must have been washed quite a few times. The woman was barefoot, and she had longish hair, though in the dark it was difficult to tell what color it was. She glanced to G for a moment, and the girl felt a tremor of recognition, something familiar about her. And then the young woman was gone, slipping back inside the house. Who with that? G sat down. J.R. sipped his coffee carefully, watching the clouds overhead. He was getting older. Maybe his hearing was going. So, she finally asked, a little louder just in case. If this isn't a hotel, then what is it? J.R. pursed his lips, studying his cup. I don't honestly know the answer to that one. We had a fella here a while back, stayed on for a few days. He told me a story that set me wondering, but in the end, it doesn't really matter. June and me, we like taking care of folks. Lots of lost children come this way, and this is a hard place for little ones. So it's a blessing to be here, both for us and for them. And when it's their time, they move on. None of this made any sense to G. Where do they go? J.R. gave a little shrug. I expect they go to where they're meant to be. Some of them. I think maybe they might end up back on the river, heading back into a new life. Newborn and pure. Ready to live again. He shook his head, maybe a little amazed by what he was saying. It's something, let me tell you. Watching all their old ways and habits fall away from them. It makes you wonder about it all. Most of the time, most of them, they're all grateful for the rest and a hot meal. And, he said with a wink, you can't beat our prices. G smiled, nodding. The words, new life, rang in her ears. She wondered what that would be like. Then she realized she already knew. There was a flare of light from the windows behind them. She turned to see June in the sitting room, lighting the lamp. A girl was there with her, younger than the woman who'd come out before. She looked around high school age, 
As G watched, the two of them made up the sofa into a little bed. June seemed stooped, moving slower than before. There was no sign of Soapy or the young woman G had seen. Maybe they were still in the kitchen, cleaning up. G wondered who the makeshift bed was for, half hoping it was for her. Where? She turned back to JR and froze. The light from the window shone full on his face. Somehow, while they'd been sitting out there, he'd aged at least ten years. There was no mistaking it now. He'd gone almost completely gray, his face deeply lined. His eyes were watery and red around the edges, and there was something like an apology in them. I know, he said, cradling his coffee cup in his hands. It's a little bit of a surprise, even to me sometimes. Keith, G said. Are you okay? J.R. nodded. It's all fine. I'm fine. But... Now, I know you've got questions, but I don't even know the answers myself. He turned in his chair to watch his wife and the girl inside. All I can say is that each morning we wake up young and bright, ready to take care of the ones who come to us. And each evening, I find I'm old and tired, ready for my rest. But when I lay down, it's next to June. And that's all I can ever hope for, or want. We were... His voice faltered for a moment, but whether from emotion or age, she could not tell. We were separated once, and I'm grateful that we don't have to worry about that ever again. He sipped his coffee. And... When we rise in the morning, we rise together. No one could hope for a better heaven. G didn't know what to say. Fortunately, the thunder filled the silence well enough. After it had subsided, J.R. said, Looks like it's going to be a big one. Bigger than we thought. I don't know which of you it was, but one of you two brought a righteous storm with you. Wanna who? He nodded. You and the old gal. Oh, I thought she was your mother. He chuckled. Oh, no. My mama lives over across the river there. He gestured to his left, where the trees and clouds competed on which could best block out the sky. And June's folks live over in the next valley yonder. They got a nice little compound. We all get together on Sunday afternoons for supper. He nodded to the trees on his right. Sooner or later, our girls will each have a place out that ways. Their brother, too. Those will be good times, when we're all together again. G mulled this over. So, then, who's Soapy? He looked at her. Soapy? She explained. The old woman. His eyebrows arched. Her name's Soapy? She shrugged. I don't know. She kept saying it, so I just started calling her that. In my head. J.R. considered this and nodded. 
Well, I expect it's all her doing, this storm. She's got a lot of fire in her. No wonder the rains are following so close to cool her down. She didn't think the old lady had seemed particularly fiery at all, but she didn't want to contradict him. As though confirming his words, there was a surge in the storm, a flurry of raindrops, staccato on the porch roof. Then it subsided. G noticed for the first time that the river was running faster than before, swollen with the storm. They sat for a while in silence, listening to the river and the rain. What was the story? G asked. Story? He glanced at her, eyebrows raised. The one that guy told you. You said it made you wonder. J.R. nodded. Well, he closed his eyes for a moment or two, head cocked to one side. After a long moment, he took a breath and let it out. There were two people long ago, his voice full of gravel and age. A man and wife. They had no children, no family, no one else but each other. They lived in an evil time, in a place where people didn't watch out for each other, where widows weren't taken care of, where orphans had to fend for themselves, where the sick and the blind and the lame had no one to reach out to in their time of need. And, in time, the people even turned away from their gods. Or if their own neighbors, who shared their daily lives, if even they would not help them, then how could they rely on those far distant gods to care? And it was in this place that two travelers came one evening. They'd been on a long, difficult road, and each door they came to was closed to them. Until at last they came to the home of the old couple. Perhaps it was their love for each other. Perhaps it was not having children of their own made them feel all people were their children. But, for whatever reason, their welcome shone like a light over their door when every other one of their neighbors was dark. And so it was to their door that the travelers came. One of the strangers bore a staff, curiously carved with two serpents. The other had eyes like lightning, though he looked kindly on the old couple for welcoming them in. Though they were poor and their resources were thin, the childless couple asked the two travelers into their home and bid them to share their meager fare over supper. The wife took the loaf that she had baked that morning, using the last of their grain. It was to have fed she and her husband for a day or two at least, but still she brought it to the table. And the husband... He spent some time inspecting the withered vine that grew over their back porch, selecting a thin bramble of grapes, the last of the season, the last they would see unless the vine survived the winter. But still, he brought it to the table. And they took their little goat, the one which they relied on for their daily milk, and made ready to slaughter and roast it for their visitors. But the stranger with the walking stick would not hear of it, 
asking only for a bowl of milk for himself and his companion. And though it meant that he and his wife would have to go without, the man milked the goat and filled the pitcher as best he could. And so, together they sat at their rough table, and when the man and his wife bowed their heads to give thanks to the gods for their guest's safe journey and for the meager bounty that had been shared, neither of them noticed that the strangers did not bow their heads. For the gods do not pray, not even to themselves. Their prayers ended, the old couple set to serve in their guests, offering up the loaf of bread to divide between them. One of the strangers, the fleet one, broke the bread in two, and as the old couple watched in amazement, the loaf was suddenly... There was a sound, and the door behind them opened. She looked back to see a girl about her own age coming from inside, carrying a plate of cookies. She was younger than the other girl, but they could have been sisters. The girl set the cookies down on a little table between the chairs. J.R. patted her head. Take one for yourself, honey. The girl smiled and selected a cookie, scampering back into the house. J.R. picked up the plate and held it out to G. The cookies smelled delicious, and they were still warm, straight from the oven. She was also relieved to see that there were no raisins. She had strong feelings about oatmeal cookies. They should be pure. She pulled the cookie apart and popped half into her mouth. Chewing thoughtfully, she waited to see if anything would happen. It won't make another one, J.R. chuckled. Sorry, but they're still pretty darn good cookies. He set the plate down and took one for himself. G nodded, chewing. Anyways, I expect you know where this is going. The loaf, it multiplied. The grapes could not all be eaten before more appeared, and bowl after bowl was filled from the pitcher. And instead of a dry, thin loaf, it was the finest bread ever baked on this earth. And the grapes were no longer the dry, grainy pebbles that had grown from a stunted vine, but heavy globes that filled your mouth with wine. And the milk wasn't the watery stuff from a thin old goat long past her prime, but the sweetest mead, as fine as anything served in Olympus at the table of the gods. What's that? she asked. What's mead? J.R. thought for a moment. You know, in all honesty, I have no idea. I think it must be some kind of wine. Something fancy and expensive. G nodded. J.R. went on. And if the strangers were surprised at the richness of such a feast served by two poor people, they did not show any sign. But for their part, the old woman and her husband were amazed. Every time they expected the pitcher to be drained, it seemed to always have just enough for one more bowl. And the more they sliced off of the loaf, the more that remained. And the same was true of the grapes. The clusters were always full, despite the strangers constantly popping them into her mouths. And the old couple, who had expected to go hungry in order to serve their guests... They found themselves feasting as they never had before in their lives. Well, 
JR looked back over his shoulder and then winked at G. I expect we can sneak one more if we hurry. He held out the plate. Once they each had a fresh cookie, he went on. As their supper was winding down, the older of the two strangers, the one with eyes like lightning and a voice deeper than thunder, he asked the old man about the dusty cradle he spied in the corner of the room. The husband told of their long life together, their faded dreams of children and family long past and impossible now. The cradle, he told them, had never rocked a babe. The old man had made it, built it in his youth, when he and his wife had first been married. Back then, they thought one day they'd have many babies, but time passed, and the cradle remained empty. Sometimes his wife would sit by the fire and thank all the children she'd never born, all the babies she'd never had a chance to rock to sleep, and she would wet the sleeve of her dress, hiding her tears from her husband as best she could. The old man saw his wife dab her eyes even now. He moved close to her and held her hand. She laid her head on his shoulder and they were quiet together for a moment. And it was clear to the strangers how much they doted on one another. Perhaps to lighten the mood, each of the strangers produced a harp from their packs and began to play an enchanting, bright tune that set the old man's toes a-tapping as only the best music can. Even his wife set her tears aside and got up to dance a little two-step on the hearth while the others played and laughed. And, as the music from each of the harps wove together in a golden braid of song, the man noticed how his old wife's eyes shone brighter than before. There was a spring in her step that he had not seen in decades a flush in her cheeks that bloomed and spread across her face, smoothing away all the creases that time and age and disappointment had left there. And on she danced, shaking out her thin hair, shaking away the dull gray in a wave of chestnut tresses. And she laughed, her voice ringing like a bell in the little cottage. And it was then that she stopped, her hand to her mouth as though to catch that youth that came spilling out of her. She held her hand out to her husband, her eyes filled half with wonder and half with horror at the sight of him so tall and handsome and young once again. Wonder and horror are not so uncommon in the presence of the gods. Or, of course, that is who the strangers were. It was Zeus and Hermes that had knocked on their door the great gods who shared their humbled meal and sanctified it beyond all measure, the Fleet One and the Thunderbolt who played their harps and thanks for the hospitality they'd been shown. And when the music stopped and the last of the notes of the harps faded, the woman and her husband felt the youth fall from them once more. Likewise, they fell to their knees, clutching each other in fear. The gods were there beside them, had listened to the paltry story of their lives, and it was a very long time before either of the gods could persuade them to raise their faces once more. So frightened were the man and his wife. But finally, when they did, 
the old couple saw that they had been transported to the mountain, to the very slope of Olympus. Above, they could see the golden light, could hear the songs of the gods, could feel the tingle of youth in their bones once more. And before them, with all their dusty traveling disguises burned away, stood Zeus and Hermes, and their faces were terrible to behold. J.R. finished off his cookie, chewing slowly. What happened? Were the gods angry? G. was waiting to see if J.R. was going to take another cookie, hoping he would. They were the best she'd ever tasted, but she didn't want to be greedy. Well, let me see if I remember. J.R. thought for a moment. G. could tell he was dragging it out on purpose. Her dad did the same thing with stories. The gods were angry, though not with the man and his wife. Zeus gestured to the little valley below, dotted here and there with farms and homes of all those wicked neighbors. Each door and heart closed to any traveler who might happen by, whether they were gods or not. Zeus was angry, and there was no holding back his wrath. In a twinkling, as fast as the pitcher on their table had been filled with new mead, the entire basin of that little valley was filled to the brim with a flood, washing away all the wickedness that had lived there for generations. And only the old man and woman were spared. That's hearth, she said. J.R. nodded. Though the gods can be, as I've been told. It's in their nature, like a storm. One moment gentle, the other cruel. Season to season, they change. Life and death, drought and flood. They sat there together for a moment in silence, watching the rain. J.R. went on with his story. The woman and her husband were afraid. But the gods smiled upon them and bade them not to fear what they had seen, for it was their generosity and hospitality that had saved them from the fate of their neighbors. And though the old man and woman were grieved for the flood, they felt relief as well. Clutching each other, they asked the gods for mercy, begging to return to their humble cottage once more. The gods promised their safe return, but only after the man and woman named the greatest desire of their heart, their deepest wish. All they had to do was but name it, and it would be granted. Perhaps they wanted to be young again, for all eternity, or to have the children they'd always dreamed of, to live in luxury and wealth, with their family spreading on through the generations to come. The man and his wife looked to each other and embraced, grateful to have been spared the wrath of the gods, grateful for their long lives together. Each looked deep into the familiar, careworn face of their love. Every line there was a map to the life they had lived now, and neither of them wanted to give it up. We only have each other, they told the gods. We have only our love and that's all we need. If there could be any gift that would please us more than this, we do not know it. 
The gods then offered to bring them to the holy slopes of Olympus itself, to rise above the earth and become one of the mighty in their own right, to live forever and share the bounty of the gods as they had shared their own humble bounty with Zeus and Hermes. Bowing low, the two declined such generosity. They knew that to live as gods would not suit their simple tastes. They knew that the lofty intrigues of Olympus would only drive them apart. They knew that nothing could be holier than the life they had together. But they said none of these things. It was enough to risk offending the gods by rejecting their offer. And it was a credit to the old couple's graceful, demure spirit that the gods did not take offense. But gods can be stubborn and do not care to be beholden to men and women. They are not used to feeling gratitude towards mortals and it makes them uncomfortable. So they insisted, which mortals, however politely, cannot hope to deny without offense. The old couple thought together for a moment and then asked that the gods might return them to their humble home and let them spend their lives together, let them never live without the other. Should one of them die, they asked, let the other one pass at the same moment so that neither of them would have to walk the path to Hades alone. The gods, marveling at the wisdom of their wishes and truth be told, a little annoyed that they hadn't thought of it themselves, told the old couple that they would have what they desired. It was no time at all that they were back at their home, together once more, and on their humble table was a loaf of bread, a bunch of grapes, and a pitcher of fresh milk. And on they lived their lives as before, although perhaps a little bit better, without the valley being overrun by wicked neighbors. And whenever a traveler came calling, their door was always open, and there was always fresh bread, grapes, and milk to be served at the table. And in the corner, the old cradle still waited, and the two harps that the gods had left behind were propped up on either side. But I don't know if anyone ever got any use out of them those harps or the cradle. But the gods did keep their word, that I do know. Although the fleet one, he had to have his little trick as well. It was at dusk when the woman stopped for a moment in the kitchen of their home, years later, laying her hand on her suddenly two-fleet heart. She could feel it flickering within her chest like thunder her breath sharp with the lightning flash of pain. She called to her husband, and he was there in an instant at her side. It's time, the old man said, embracing his wife. It's time, the old woman said, burying her face in his chest. J.R. was silent for a long moment. Then he went on. But instead of passing away together into shadow, they stood in wonder as each felt their feet clutch deep into the ground, felt their arms raise up and grow together into a beautiful spread of intertwining boughs overhead. And, 
around these two trees. Their humble home was transformed into a beautiful domed temple, open on all sides so that travelers from any direction would always be welcomed. They clutched each other, growing together even closer than either of them had ever dreamed possible, whispering through the years to welcome any and all to the table where the food was always plentiful for those in need. And there they stood, their intertwined arms raised together in praise to the generosity and the kindness of their gods. This book is a work of fiction. All situations, events, and characters are nothing more nor less than products of the author's imagination. And it's entirely possible that some of you are as well. Any resemblance to persons living, dead, or somewhere in between is entirely coincidental, especially if any of them want to sue me. This recording of The Cradle was produced by Our Own Press and is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives License. It is copyright 2012, TM Camp, all rights reserved, except for the music, which is copyright Michael Levy. Violators of this copyright will be prosecuted to the full extent of the law and suffer the fury of the gods poured out in mighty waves of unending wrath until nothing of your selfish lands remain but water as far as the eye can see. Or being turned into goats. Either way, you'll be sorry. You'll see. This recording was originally distributed as a free download through the author's website at www.tmcamp.com. The music is available from Michael Levy's website at www.ancientliar.com.
our own press, bringing readers and writers together, one story at a time.